Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Are nasty politics the highest they've been since the Civil War? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And then buy some classes. I've got a new one. Reading George Washington, you can use the coupon code WASHINGTON get $70 off. It's a great deal. You want to do it because it's an awesome class, and it's only going to last. That coupon code only works during the month of July 2023. So use the coupon code WASHINGTON to get $70 off. It's the lowest price you'll ever see it again. And then, of course, you can purchase other classes there, too. I've got well over 20 available for purchase. Buying those classes keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, or you can go to Spotify for podcasters. Those are both great ways to do it. Or you can go to YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little heart, the super thanks button under the video. All those are great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And of course, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. And if you're on YouTube, comment for the algorithm. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And of course, that would be, is America in a nasty political state? And I've talked about this before on this show. I've been talking about this for nearly seven years now when the show launched in 2016. It's the whole reason I discuss Think Locally, Act Locally, or one of the reasons. American politics are pretty nasty. American politics and the vitriol and other things and the way that we've polarized uh, is a pretty nasty situation in the United States. And you see it if you're on social media. I think social media compounds the problem because people are free to say whatever they want on social media. They don't really know anyone. There's no really direct conversation. You don't have a relationship with people that are there. And just because you have a relationship with someone doesn't mean they're not, things aren't going to get nasty. But the fact is, there is no kind of mutual conversation or trying to work through something if you're in a social media environment, because it's very easy just to hide behind the screen and the keyboard and say whatever you want to somebody. So we've gotten a pretty nasty situation, I think, with, with American politics. But why is it that way is the real question. And I'm, I'm going to read a piece about this today. Uh, first of all, I found some of it to be absolutely hilarious because of the the way that the website describes their writing is just completely the opposite of what they do. But uh, I've talked about this before. Why is, a, why is American politics so bad? What makes it that way? You know, if you go back 
into the 18th and then 19th century and 20th centuries when you have pretty vitriolic times, and they were there. Why was it like that? What was gumming up the works? What made everything so awful that people had to get really nasty with each other? Well, let's go back to the 18th century. We'll go all the way back to Washington's administration. Of course, this is a fitting discussion in some ways because of that class I have, right? Get reading George Washington. It's about George Washington's own words. So, we go back to Washington's administration, and he writes the farewell address, of course, in 1796. And Washington warns in 1796 that factions have become a problem in America, that it's natural for this to happen, that people are going to coalesce, but that people should do their best to forego their sectional or state jealousies and animosities and think about the good of the whole. Think about the good of the union and do what's best for the good of the union. Now, this is, this is a nice sentiment. It feels good to say these things. George Washington's imploring us to do this. But why? Of course, what he is pointing out and what he pointed out up until the day he died, 1799, he thought America did not have a sufficient, quote-unquote, Americanism. In other words, George Washington recognized that we had fundamental cracks in this idea of one people, one nation, one nation indivisible, one size fits all. He understood that that really wasn't the American character, and he hoped it would be that. And Washington understood he was the glue that put all this stuff together, and that if he wasn't really there to glue it together, something else had to do it. By the time he died in 1799, you had already had the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. You'd already seen a situation where a good number of Americans perhaps the majority, and I think clear it was the majority by the time you get to the 1800 election, did not really care for the Federalist program. They didn't really care for top-down centralized government. They wanted a lot more wiggle room for the states. In other words, most Americans viewed federalism, real federalism, as the key to holding the Republic, the Federal Republic, together. You see, that's what held together. What was gumming up the works was nationalism. You had the Alien and Sedition Acts. It was a nationalist act. It was unconstitutional federal power. You had, during the Washington administration, centralization when it came to things like the Bank of the United States, Hamiltonian taxes. These things which were forced on the United States because, you see, when the Constitution is ratified, we get a federal republic. That's what everybody said we were going to have. It's what James Wilson marched out in October of 1787. The ink had barely been dry on the parchment and said, look, what we're going to have here is a real federal republic because the Constitution is so limited in its powers, the states are going to do most of everything that needs to be done. And that was his argument. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing. That was his argument. And this is how the friends of the Constitution sold it over and over again as it was going through ratification. I have a great class at McClanahan Academy, by the way, that goes through this. It's called Originalist Papers, and I've got 101 documents in favor of ratification that I cover that discuss this very position. I don't make this stuff up. So that was the general consensus in the 18th century. Washington dies in 1799. Then we have the Jeffersonian period, and voila! 
During the Jeffersonian period, you had far less nasty political conflict than you did in the years leading up to 1800. Didn't mean it wasn't there. Didn't mean the Federalists weren't pushing for secession, because they were. In 1801, in 1804, in 1815, they did it over and over again. They talked about it during the embargo. The Essex Junto in New England. So you did have a faction in New England that was not happy with what they perceived to be one-size-fits-all government. And they wanted out. But for the most part, Jefferson was willing to tolerate these people in a way that perhaps no other president would have. He said it in his first inaugural. He was willing to tolerate this kind of dissent. He believed in federalism. Now, when you get to the embargo period and you see that Jefferson has kind of centralized things, well, this is where the tertium quids would get rather upset with Jefferson and say that you're not being yourself. You've centralized power too much. And those opponents of Jefferson, basically from Virginia and other southern states, said that you know, what you're doing is unconstitutional. We don't agree with this, with this embargo. We get to Madison. We get to the War of 1812. There's dissent during that. But then when you get the Treaty of Ghent, the Federalists just disappear after the Hartford Convention. All that's gone. Then you have the era of good feelings. What breaks that apart? People will say, well, slavery. Well, why was slavery an issue? Why did New Englanders start dredging this up? Because they did. You see, they were willing to live with it in the ratification process. They did talk about it. Massachusetts talked about slavery. Do we want to be in a union with slaveholding states? They discussed it openly. And the, the argument was, well, those people aren't going to affect us at all because that's not an issue for the general government. We have a constitution with limited powers. They can only do so much. And to people in South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia, Virginia, wherever it was, that issue, South Carolina talked about it a little bit, and they didn't think that Massachusetts or Connecticut could hurt them. right? So this federal republic was going to hold everything together. So we get to Missouri. We get to the Missouri controversy during the James Monroe, Monroe administration. And what happens there? Well, New Englanders figure out, these old Federalists figure out that they can start worming their way into power if they use this issue to their advantage. And that would be in the Western territories. Now, nobody had ever said anything about this. I mean, we had had Louisiana purchase. We had had other, we had had West Florida. Nobody had said anything that rose a stink over slavery in that territory. But once Missouri starts trying to become a state, a petitions for statehood, oh my gosh, then we have to talk about it. And the problem was, that Congress was trying to prohibit Missouri as a state from being able to decide its own future in terms of the relationship of the state to slavery. James Monroe said he wouldn't have any of that. We can discuss the territories, but not the states. And so the issue became not about slavery itself from a moral position, but about power. Why is it these New Englanders started raising a stink and they started saying with the Western territories, they knew that Many of the people moving out west weren't going to be as in, as in love with slavery as others. And so you could, you could use that to kind of break this alliance between the west and the south. It's why they oppose the Louisiana Purchase. you got all these farmers moving out there. They're all going to vote together. We're doomed, in other words. So now they figure out they can use this issue as a wedge between the west and the south. And not, that, not just that, they can gain power if they have more, quote-unquote, free states than slave states. Because ostensibly, free states 
if you can use that issue of slavery rhetorically as a wedge against the South, look, these people are not you, these people are not there, then you can get them to vote for you. So this became about power. It was power politics from the beginning. The rhetoric used at the ramp up to this, and then during the 19th century became about power. It was up until the war. And what were Southerners afraid of in the war? Well, you could say it was slavery. What they were really worried about is centralization of power. They were worried that people alien to them in their own mind would control an issue that was not really on the table for the general government to handle. And there was other things, of course, too, going on there. They were also worried about the Western territories. The Supreme Court, in their mind, had decided the issue in Dred Scott. And so here you have these people that are not obeying the Constitution. They're more concerned about power than anything else. And so Southerners aside, and they actually pull off leaving the Union. New Englanders have threatened it for years. In fact, when you go back and read Albert Taylor Bledsoe's as Davis a Traitor, most of the book is about New England. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. Most of the book is about how he's calling New England a bunch of hypocrites for this. And he's right about that. I mean, this is, this is a really important point to make. New England was hypocritical in this time period. So you've got an issue of power. When the war's over, the real issue became centralization of power. How much power was the general government going to have, constitutionally or not? And how are they going to abuse this power? These became real big issues. It was always about power. So the late 19th century, you get this real division in politics in America. It looks like America is supremely divided, north and south. And you've got a real discussion about power. What kind of power did the central government have? What kind of power the, uh, did uh, the Congress have? What kind of power did the presidency have? And it came down to, well, we don't believe in centralization. We still have a federal republic, supposedly. But, of course, the 14th Amendment is going to be used to change that and on down the line. And we see these contentious periods because of power. It's no different than today. And, yes, we've gotten pretty nasty in the way that we relate to each other in American politics. Not, not like the 1850s. But, I mean, the name-calling is there. And when I say the name-calling, you know, in the 1850s, Southerners were called all kinds of things. Devils. They were the drunken vomit of an uneasy civilization. I mean, these were nasty, nasty people, according to New Englanders. They weren't even human. We've done that in some ways, the left has in particular, with uh, their opponents. Hillary Clinton calling people deplorables. Deplorables. Because if you do that, right, these people now become less than human. They're not really human beings. They don't have anything that's of value. They're just a caricature. They're the Red Hat Brigade. You see? They're a caricature of, of not even a human being. I, I, I pointed out there was a, a, uh, a movie, Amber, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer. You see, Southerners weren't even human beings. They were vampires. I mean, this is... This is the kind of stuff you see when you start reducing your political opponents to caricatures, subhumans. Then it doesn't matter if you eliminate them. It doesn't matter what you do to eliminate them. They don't deserve to be around. I've had, I've seen comments. There was one the other day. Uh, you know, these people deserve a slow and a horrible death. If you disagree with me politically, this is what is being said. And they believe it. Now, you could say the, the right 
does this as well, right? They create these caricatures. But I think in so many ways, the left does it to themselves. And it, there are people on the right that do it, but, but the left does it to themselves. They create their own caricatures because, I mean, you can see it. It's literally there in front of you. Now, you do have the guy that has all the flags hanging off the back of his truck and all the Trump stickers and that. And so that creates its own kind of caricature. But we know that and there's been testimony about this, that a lot of times that the things that happen that are supposed to be coming from the right are just a bunch of federal agents trying to portray this as the right. And the right really doesn't do this stuff. The violent political faction in America has always been the left, and they have to try to work to make the right seem that way because most people on the right aren't going to go out and do this kind of stuff. They're too busy working and doing and focusing on their family and producing for their life. They don't have time to go out and protest and all these kind of things. That's for the left to do. This is why the right was often called the silent majority because they just go out and vote. They go work. They, they, go, they live their lives, and then they try to vote and try to get a better outcome by putting better people in office. Now we can say that's insanity because it never really works, but regardless. So we've got this period of time now that you know we've got this vitriol. Why? Because we have centralization and nationalization and one size fits all government back on the table. Every both sides are worried about the other side gaining and controlling power, and they're controlling the most powerful apparatus ever created in the history of man, and that is the United States federal government, the United States general government, the United States national government, whatever you want to call it, but the central government for the United States. When I say it's the most powerful apparatus ever created in the history of man, well, let's, let's investigate. It spends more money any, every year than any other entity in the world. Trillions and trillions of dollars. It spends more money than any other entity in the world. It controls a police force, which is the United States military. That's the largest in the world 10 times over. It has a secret police, the FBI, the CIA. That's more powerful than any other secret police force in the history of the world. It has agencies like the IRS, the ATF, the DEA. It has agencies that have powers of all three branches of government. OSHA. I mean, you can take something that's supposed to be benign like OSHA. It has agencies that have the powers of all three branches of government. And federal agents dedicated to using those powers to enforce their will. So this entity... This general government, the central government of the United States, is the most powerful thing man has ever created. It has the power to ruin you at a whim. There's nothing more powerful. You can look at the Roman government. You can look at the British Empire, which had supreme checks on its power. We know this because of the American War for Independence. You can look at the French government, the French Empire, Nothing. Nothing compares. You can look at governments in China. Now, of course, governments in China can shut things down, but they don't have the kind of power the U.S. government has because it's not as large. You can look at the Russian Empire. You can look at any of these empires. The United States government trumps them all. So this is why when you start talking about power and you look at people getting very nervous and angry about what this general government can do, they worry about it. Now, there are cracks. I mean, this is in some ways kind of like the Wizard of Oz. 
Because in reality, and this is what this is why I talk about on the show over and over, in reality, there are cracks in all this, and that is federalism. Because when you really do push back and the states do it, the central government has to back down. Because they know that all of this, in many ways, is just a sham. It's the Oz behind the curtain portraying the big face. You pull the curtain back, just an old man, an old bumbling fool who doesn't know anything. Doesn't even know where he is half the time. Now, it doesn't mean that all this other stuff isn't there and they can't do stuff to you, because it can. But when the states push back, and the states really assert themselves, and the people decide they're not going to take it, people of the states decide they're not going to take this stuff, they push back, they almost always win. That's the important thing to take from this. So Americans are angry and they've got all this vitriol because they don't understand the real beauty of federalism. It is a beautiful thing when it comes to limiting power. Because we don't have people that go to Washington, D.C. that really are committed to the original federal republic. They're about aggrandizing themselves, making themselves rich, enriching themselves, doing whatever they can to highlight their political profile. You know, Ron DeSantis should be happy staying in Florida and making Florida a place that uh, you know conservatives want to go to. I mean, that's what he should be doing. Same thing with the governor of Texas or Alabama. They shouldn't be worried about running around trying to be president of the United States. It's the allure of power that draws these people to it. And of course, that allure is, I mean, it's, it's enticing. Why be a governor when I can be a senator? Why be a governor when I can be a president? House of Representatives doesn't have the same kind of appeal, but he's already done that. So he's trying to look for the other offices, senator, president. Those are bigger offices, right? Why be the schlub? Why be a big fish in a small pond when I can be the big fish in the big pond? It's always that allure of power. There was only one Washington for a reason. So this piece about American politics being nasty, I'm going to read it. It's not long. It's by, it's by a website called The Conversation. Academic rigor, journalistic flair. There's no rigor in this piece at all. There's no academic rigor here at all. And it's written by Thomas uh, Zaitoff. Zaitzoff, I'm sorry. Zaitzoff. Thomas Zaitzoff is associate professor at American University. Um, and Zaitzoff writes this piece that's supposed to have some academic rigor, rigor and journalistic flair. I would say it has more journalistic nonsense than anything else. Joe Biden, together with a band of his closet thugs, misfits, and Marxists, tried to destroy American democracy. This is what John, Donald Trump said to his supporters hours after pleading not guilty in a federal court in June 2023 to his mishandling of classified documents. The indictment of a former president was shocking, but Trump's words were not. 20 years ago, his rhetoric would have been unusual coming from any member of Congress, let alone a party leader. Yet language like this from the leading Republican presidential candidates is becoming remarkably common in American politics. It's not just Republicans. In 2019, New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker appeared on a talk show bemoaning Trump's rhetoric and the lack of civility in politics. But he then went on to call Trump a physically weak specimen and said that his own testosterone makes me want to punch Trump. So, yeah, I mean, you've got people on both sides. You've got Nancy Pelosi little Nancy Pelosi, I want to punch him in the face. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You think about it. Now, this kind of stuff has been going on for years. In fact, I would say it's less than it used to be. 
You used to have open brawls in Congress, people going to dueling each other, right? I mean, Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel because of politics. <laughs> this happened all the time. People dueled all the time. There was something more dangerous about rhetoric in the 19th century because honor mattered. And when you call somebody out and, and, and impugn their honor, you could face a duel. Now, we don't do that anymore. You know, this is shocking to us because we don't have that kind of recourse anymore. And I'm not saying we should. It's a nasty thing. But we have simple verbal uh, you know, abuse. We don't actually have physical abuse. So in some ways, our politics are more like professional wrestling than the 19th century when there was a tremendous amount of violence, political violence, real, actual political violence. Andrew Jackson carried a bullet in his shoulder for his entire life, pretty much, because of a duel. Because of politics, or a personal grudge. But still, because really because of politics. Things could get pretty nasty. They're not like that anymore. There's a book, There Will Be Blood, um, by Freeman. She's far left. But she writes about political violence in the 19th century and how bad it actually was. John Randolph of Roanoke loved dueling. This was something that people had to do. There was an honor behind it. When you called somebody out, well, you might have to face a pistol. That's, a, that's real political violence. And we don't have that kind of stuff in Washington. Now, we know that people do get violent outside of that. That does happen, unfortunately. But I wouldn't say that we're, we're as violent as we were in the 19th century. I would say that people are now interested in name-calling a lot. I mean, that happens. Uh, but it's not violence. How bad have things gotten? In my new book, I show that the level of nastiness in U.S. politics has increased dramatically. As an indication of that, I collected historical data from the New York Times on the relative frequency of stories involving Congress that contain keywords associated with nasty politics, such as smear, brawl, and slander. I found that nasty politics is more prevalent than at any time since the United States Civil War. Okay. Uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of our political rhetoric, that's ramped up to a point that it was not. And that's one of the reasons is because, of course, in the middle of the 20th century, you had World War II. And you see, that is viewed with kind of these rose-colored glasses as this golden age of a period of time when everybody got behind each other and everybody rallied around the flag. People forget that on September 11, 1941, Charles Lindbergh made a speech, and Charles Lindbergh was called all kinds of nasty names by the left. I mean, this man was... I mean, there was an attempt to basically run him out of town. The America First Committee was called all kinds of names. We forget about that stuff. Franklin Roosevelt did a full-court press, his administration, against one man, Charles Lindbergh, because they saw him as a threat to the war party. We, we forget about these things. We forget about the thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that were arrested during World War I for opposing American entry into that war. So American rhetoric might be ramped up, but American action might be, in terms of you know, what's going on, maybe even a little less violent than it was just, say, 70 years ago. I, I don't know. I would say perhaps it is. We have to look at this in the historical perspective. And so this guy, 
uh, saying, well, our rhetoric is terrible. Well, I mean, yeah, we're not calling each other, you know, in the 1850s, you know, drunken vomit and devils and all kinds of things. But we're, we're close to that, right? But the action of it is a little different. Particularly following the January 6th insurrection by Trump supporters. Again, there's the political. This is where I say, you know, uh, this piece has got no journalistic flair, academic rigor. When you call this an insurrection, then you're not really telling the truth. By Trump supporters, many of whom, of course, outside weren't real Trump supporters. There was all kinds of other people there trying to incite these things. Journalists and scholars have focused on the rise of the politics of menace. Journalists and scholars, politics of menace. In May 2023, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger testified before Congress and said that one of the biggest challenges the U.S. Capitol Police face today, quote, is dealing with the sheer increase in the number of threats against the members of Congress. has gone up over 400% over the last six years. Okay, how do we know this? Does he, did he provide evidence of this? That's, I mean, is, is that, did he provide evidence, direct evidence this has happened? Did he say this is what the threats were then and this is what they are now? And here's the data. We know that Nancy Pelosi wanted to have Capitol Police offices all over the United States. Why? Why would you want to do that? As I said, the federal government is huge. Nazi politics is an umbrella term for the aggressive rhetoric and occasional actual violence that politicians use against domestic political opponents and other domestic groups. Insults are the least threatening and most common form of Nazi politics. These include politicians' references to opponents as idiots, criminals, and scar scum. Leveling accusations or using conspiracy theories to claim an opponent is engaging in something nefarious is also common in nasty politics. Less common and more ominous are threats to jail political opponents or encourage one's supporters to commit violence against those opponents. In 2021, Republican U.S. Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona tweeted out an anime cartoon video of his likeness killing Democratic U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. Now, notice what's missing here. There is a member of Congress who was actually shot not long ago playing a baseball game or a softball game by a nut job on the left because he was incited to violence. Nobody ever talks about that anymore on the left. But there was actual physical violence. A member of Congress. It was, I mean, it was horrible. Steve Scalise who I disagree with Steve Scalise on a lot of the things that he does. But Steve Scalise was shot by a nut, a left-wing nut. Do we forget that there were people threatening violence on Supreme Court judges not long ago outside their house, but yet his evidence here, this is where I say there's not really any academic rigor here or journalistic flair at all. His evidence is a tweet calling for violence when there's been actual threats. Or how about the people that were banging on Tucker Carlson's door when his when he wasn't there, his wife was home alone, and they're beating down his door practically, trying to incite violence. Or Rand Paul getting beat up, walking from one place to another in Washington, D.C. Do we forget about this? No, no, no. It's all about the January 6th insurrection. Where you guys walking through the Capitol in, in, the, in the velvet lines, by the way, smiling and waving for the camera. What kind of political violence do we have, really? They ignore. The left doesn't ever think that they do anything. This is the real problem with it all. 
The rarest and most extreme examples of Nazi politics entail politicians actively engaging in violence themselves. For instance, in 2017, Republican U.S. Representative Greg Giaforte of Montana body slammed a reporter from The Guardian. Giaforte would later win his 2018 election and is current governor of Montana. But Nazi policy is not just a U.S. phenomenon. So, see, Nazi politics is all about Republicans doing nasty things. Where Where's this stuff about Democrats? Now, of course, this is not, you know, the Steve Scalise situation or Rand Paul or all this. Not, it's not actual politicians doing these things. It's only the right-wing guys that do this stuff. You know, Strom Thurmond years ago wanted to try to fight when he was like 100 years old, trying to fight again. I mean, that's, that's one of the best stories ever. Strom Thurmond trying to take a swing at a, another member of Congress. And the guy's, you know, he's close to 100. Now, Strom Thurmond lifted weights his entire life. And it's kind of an interesting story in his physical fitness. But regardless, um, I, I, you know, we only point out the Republicans in this piece. And then he gets into some things about uh, some of the some of the instances of political violence in other parts of the world, which I'm going to skip over, because I want to focus on the U.S. He says the conventional wisdom for the reason politicians go nasty is that while voters find mudslinging or political brawling distasteful, it's actually effective. Or that although they won't admit it, voters actually secretly like nasty politics. Yet polling consistently shows the opposite: voters don't like it when politicians go nasty, or where it could lead to violence and reduce their support for those who do use it. That's what I found in countless surveys in the U.S., Ukraine, and Israel, where I did research for my book. Other research in the U.S. finds that even ardent Trump supporters reduced their approval for him when he used uncivil language. So why do politicians use nasty politics? First, nasty politics grabs attention. Nasty rhetoric is more likely to get covered in the media or get likes, clicks, or shares on social media than its civil counterpart. For Trump, some of his most shared tweets were often labeling Antifa a terrorist organization. Well, it is. And a clip of him body-slamming a pro wrestler with CNN's logo superimposed. That was funny. I mean, look, that stuff is funny. That's what people don't get. And because of the way this face is and all these kind of things. But Antifa is a terrorist organization. They engage in terror. Good grief, they firebombed a U.S. courthouse. I mean, it's, it's a terrorist organization by every definition of the word. So to call it that, isn't using rhetoric, it's pointing out the truth. But this this guy, and I'm I'm gonna avoid using the nasty rhetoric because of course that's what it could be. This guy thinks that somehow uh, this is fake. Second, given their attention grabbing nature, nasty politics politics can be a particularly important tool for opposition or outsider politicians. These politicians who don't have the name recognition or access the, to the same resources as party leaders can use nasty politics to get noticed and build a following. Third, and perhaps most important, nasty politics can be used as signal toughness. This toughness is something that voters seek out when they feel threatened. This sentiment is best captured in a September 2018 tweet from the Reverend Jerry Falwell, <laughs> a Trump ally. Again, it's just Republicans. This is why I find this piece so funny. Conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. It might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters like Donald Trump at every level of government because the liberal fascist Dems are playing for keeps and many leaders are a bunch of wimps. So how about this tweet from Jerry Falwell or Jerry Falwell Jr.? Now, what about uh, Maxine Waters who said we got to get in the street and get in people's faces? And this is exactly what happened. People sitting out eating on a you know cafe on the sidewalk and lefties coming up and with bullhorns in your face. 
She's inciting violence. They did it over and over again. We got to take to the streets. Kamala Harris, we got to take to the streets. That's inciting violence. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, why not use those examples? Well, because that's not Republicans. So he concludes by saying, nasty politics has important implications for democracy. It can be a legitimate tool for opposition and outsider politicians to call attention to bad behavior, but it can also be used as a cynical, dangerous tool by incumbents who cling to power that can lead to violence. Yeah, like Maxine Waters or Kamala Harris or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But that's not the example. For example, in the lead-up to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, Trump and his supporters concocted a baseless conspiracy that the 2020 election would be stolen. Kind of like what Hillary Clinton said would happen in 2016. He implored his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th as part of a rally to support the baseless conspiracy and stop the steal and urge followers to be there and be wild, foreshadowing the violence that was to come. But he never called for any violence. Perhaps most ominously for the future of U.S. democracy, the growing Trump legal troubles have escalated to violent rhetoric. After Trump's indictment in June, Republican U.S. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona tweeted, We now have reached a war phase, eye for an eye. The uptick in nasty politics in the U.S. is both a symptom of the country's deeply divided politics and a harbinger of future threats to democracy. That's not what it's a symptom of. It's a symptom of extreme nationalism. It's extreme it's a symptom. That's why that last line, these people don't even know what's really happening. It's a symptom of centralization of power. It's a symptom of the big unconstitutional government that we have. That's the real problem. It's not deeply divided politics. We've always had that. Or threats to democracy. No, no, no. This is about power. It's about those that are seeking power using the largest and most powerful apparatus that man has ever created, and that is the United States general government. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.